0: Hey up Sassnacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files, but before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that no matter where you're listening to this podcast, you can always find the Sassnack Files on a myriad of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, and many, many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to Facebook and Instagram to follow the Sassnack Files for all of your Outlander needs including news on Outlander Season 6 and Diana Gabaldon's newest book, Go Tell the Bees That I'm Gone. In addition to that, we are working our way through our best episode of Season 5 bracket currently on social media. So if you would like to put your input into which episode you think is the best, make sure to head over to Facebook or Instagram and cast your votes now. And with all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of 312 The Bakra. It is so good to be here with you guys today to talk season three, episode 12, the penultimate episode of season three, the Bakra. And let me tell you, I am in such good spirits here in Indiana. The weather is finally getting warmer. We've had a string of days where it is sunny and above 50 degrees, which is also fantastic. Like spring has sprung, there's green on the trees, all the flowers are blooming, the birds are singing. And I am ready to talk some Outlander, even though it's in the wee hours of the morning. And I'm on night shift, so I don't get to appreciate that as much as I would like to. But you know what? We'll take the small things in life, right? So with that in mind, we're going to jump on over to 312, the Bakra, And there is a lot to unpack in this episode, so I'm ready to break it down with you guys. The first thing that I want to chat about is we finally get to find out what the heck happened to young Ian. And he has had a hell of a journey. Let me tell you. Poor kid. Sexual assault. Kidnapping. Next episode, he almost dies. Ian has one of the craziest stories of all the Outlander characters. And that is saying something, guys. Because as you know... Outlander in itself is not a cakewalk, okay? Everybody has something that happens to them in this series, and to say that young Ian's story is one of the biggest roller coaster rides is kind of nuts, and this is really just the beginning of it. So, I can't wait to see where his story goes and live it all with you guys as we progress up through season 4 and 5, all the way through 6 and you know, trying not to get ahead of myself, but hopefully I'll still be in it to win it for season seven. (laughs) So let's talk about Ian and he encounters someone like, seriously, we thought we were rid of Gayla Duncan, right? (laughs) But she is back and crazier than ever. And I really did appreciate all of the throwbacks in this episode. Like not only are we seeing characters that we haven't seen for a while, in Galus and Lord John. But we're also getting all kinds of reminders of the story up to this point, And I'll get into that a little bit later. But this episode really was all about the nostalgia. I mean, yes, don't get me wrong, we are thrown for a loop this episode. There's a lot of witchcraft and superstition in this episode, much more than you get in an average Outlander episode. I mean, obviously, we know that Outlander is a... Shall we say, science fiction show? It's got time travel, and we know it does have a little bit of witchcraft, a little bit of juju here and there, but overall, it's not like blatantly in your face sci fi, right? And in this episode, it kind of is. We deal with the idea of ghosts and fortune telling. Obviously, there's the time travel aspect involved. We also have truth serums made by witch doctors and prophecies. So, it's really kind of a crazy ride in this penultimate episode. I feel like it does a good job ramping up to the season three finale, even though with all the stuff that does happen in this episode and the next episode, I do feel like it could have been spread out a little bit more into Uncharted just because I felt like there was so much lag time in that episode. But no use crying over spilt milk, you know, it's been several years since this season came out. So, It's done and over with, and we're just gonna have to deal with it. I'm gonna have to get past it, but just kind of seeing what could be does grind my gears a little bit. It's not something that keeps me up at night or anything. And generally, I do like this episode. I think it's a good episode. It's just a lot happens in this episode. A lot. Speaking of Galus, what the heck happened to her, right? So In timeline order, the last time that we saw her, she was running through the stones in the 1960s. And then as far as Claire knew, she got burnt at the stake as a witch in Cranesmere. And that was the end of that. Well, it turns out she survived. And Dougal came and rescued her as she believed he would, which as much as I despise Dougal and Galus, like, it's such a fucked up relationship pardon my French, but man, those two, they're just crazy enough (laughs) that they're perfect for each other, if that makes sense. And I know that Galas was devastated by what happened to Dougal because she was genuinely in love with him. And I think that she tried to hide how much it it hurt her when she found out that he had died. But um, that's what spurred her to move to the Caribbean and marry Mr. Abernathy. And then um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that she murdered him. I don't really think it's too much of a stretch given what we know has happened to her previous husband. And given what I know from the book series and everything that I've read about her there, I just I really do think that she killed her husband. So just based on the way that she was like, the tropics are very bad for Englishmen. Like, any little thing will just carry them off. And you can see, like, Claire knows she burnt her other husband alive, okay? Like, literally poured whiskey over him and lit him on fire. And so you can see the hesitation. Like, Claire's like, she's a crazy bitch. And I think that Claire, given what Claire knows that Galus has done in her life now, like, given the person that she was in 1968 before she went back to Cranesmere, it really surprises me that Claire still puts so much trust in her. Um, Because Galus is a self-serving person. She doesn't do anything that doesn't serve Galus in one way or the other, like, or Galus's agenda. And so, lest we forget Whenever we saw Galus last in Dragonfly and Amber, she was Gillian Edgars. That's her original identity. That's who she is in the 1960s. But she was a proponent of Free Scotland and she was a member of the White Roses. And the entire reason that she went back to the 18th century is to propel and aid the Jacobite forces into, hopefully... A victory for Bonnie Prince Charlie and to prevent the union of Scotland and Britain because the Free Scotland movement in the 60s believed that Scotland lost its identity when, the, when they joined with the British and the Scots lost at Culloden. The whole hope for Galus was that if she could raise enough money and help enough with her knowledge of the future that she could change the future and help the Jacobites to win the rising. Obviously, none of this happened, but Galus is still Gaelis, And here she is 20 years later, and she's still working towards a free Scotland. It just has a different face. And she's a little bit more crazy town than she was, which is really saying something for a person that sacrificed her husband to go through a circle of standing stones. So, yes. Anyway, so here we are 20 years later, like I said, and she is absolutely obsessed by this prophecy by the Bronze Seer, which is something that was pulled from the books, but it is invariably different in the show just because they simply didn't have enough time to fully develop this story and give it every detail that it has in the books. I'm not going to go into it because it would take more time than I have, but needless to say. In the show version, she finds out that this prophecy supposedly tells of the rising of a new king of Scotland. And so she's trying to have this prophecy told by Margaret Campbell so that she can figure out how to put a new king of Scotland on the throne, basically furthering her Free Scotland initiative. As part of this prophecy being read, she has to unite the three sapphires, which is the whole reason that Ian ended up getting kidnapped. And to throw a further wrench in the works, the three sapphires aren't there because Jamie took one of them when he was looking for Claire way back in the episode All Debts Paid. So John has the third sapphire. So not only are we getting Galis back in this episode, but we get Lord John back as well. And it really just propels this entire series of events, like a big domino effect. And we do get the the prophecy. But Margaret is saying, I don't want to do this. This is going to be bad. Like this is unleashing something dark. And there's going to be death involved. And I just don't want that. And obviously, her brother is a bit of a monster. Um, He's very conceited and self-involved and he only cares about the money of it. And of course, she's a woman and she doesn't get a say in the matter. She does as she's told because he's threatening to beat her if she doesn't obey, which really sucks. And obviously, Mr. Willoughby has massive issues with that. And we only get a tidbit of that whole conflict going on. But It's also a very interesting relationship that Yi Tin Cho has with Margaret. That is Galus's kind of whole thing, this episode. It's very complicated, and I was really kind of thrown for a loop when I found out that she was still alive. When I read the books, I was like, wait, what? I think I had the same reaction that Claire had because I was like, I thought she died. Like, what's happening? And, you know... Diana has said, unless you see somebody die from the character's perspective that you're reading in her books, um, they're never really dead. So that, that is interesting that she's like, you can't count on somebody being dead unless the POV that you're reading sees that person die right in front of their eyes. Like there's always a chance that they're going to be brought back. And the same can be said for the fact that this is a show and this is a story based on time travel. So... (laughs) Um, Just because even somebody dies doesn't mean we're never going to see them again, which is also a very interesting concept to have. So moving on from Galus, I'll talk a little bit about um, Lord John's role in this whole episode. And I really, I just love David Barry. It's always good to see him come back for a little bit. I love Lord John's character in general. So to get this entire storyline really just made my heart happy. Again, something that was different in the books and that they kind of had to reduce and streamline for time. But I think that the essence of the story was really still there. It's really great because Jamie and Claire having this moment in line and then he sees John and he just gets kind of this washed out wide eyed look and he's like, what the hell? And John, likewise, whenever he sees Jamie, he just can't believe it. And I will say, and I know I've said this multiple times in this podcast over past episodes, so I won't mention it too much and go on and on about it, but after having read the Lord John books, I have a whole other appreciation for John's character in this episode because this is the first time that Jamie and John are seeing each other since Jamie left probably four or five years ago now. Since he left Hellwater. So, other than maybe a letter here and there, there really hasn't been any contact. And so, Jamie is desperate for news of Willie. And I think John, obviously, having been pining over Jamie this whole time, like he loves Jamie deeply. And he knows that Jamie can never reciprocate those feelings, but it doesn't stop him from thinking about him all the time and constantly feeling that concern and worry, but also this incredible fondness for Jamie. I think David Barry did a fantastic job of portraying that on his face, like being so happy to see Jamie again. And then kind of that shock when he finds out that Claire is alive. He's like, wait, what? And then you can see the jealousy kind of start to fizzle in. And it's something that he really tries to hide. I don't think he enjoys feeling that way. Because John is a very compassionate person by nature, but also he kind of views Jamie as his. And that was the one thing that kind of comforted John, I guess. Maybe that's the wrong term to use, but that Jamie was emotionally unavailable. Like he wasn't involved with anyone because he was pining after Claire so much. Like he was so deep in grief over her that he didn't have room in his heart for anyone else. And now that Claire is physically there, he can see Jamie being complete again. And I think there's part of him that really longs to be that completion for Jamie. But he realizes deep down that that's kind of out of the realm of possibility. Like he knows that, but it doesn't stop the green monster from rearing its ugly head. And I mean, jealousy is not a easily definable issue. It's not something that we can control. It's just there. And I think we've all had those moments. So I really did feel for John in that moment. But also, it made me wonder how much just how much Jamie had told Claire about John because yes, he told Claire about Willie and obviously he told her about Geneva and everything of that matter. But when John is looking at Jamie and Jamie is looking at John in that moment in the office, they're sharing something, this silent language, this long look. And Claire is feeling the awkwardness. Like you can see it. She's like, what's happening? What's going on? And there is this moment in the book, but it's kind of behind closed doors. Like she wasn't meant to see this moment between John and Jamie, whereas now she's in the room and it's not as explicit as it was in the book, like, but it's definitely that awkward feel to it that she just doesn't entirely know. And so I am wondering at this point if she knows of John's homosexuality and how he feels about Jamie or if that's something that she's kind of vibing on but doesn't really know for sure. It does make me wonder how much Jamie has actually shared with her about him. Nevertheless, seeing John talk about Willie, it just brightens his expression. And then for him to tell Jamie, you know, he's a marvelous equestrian. You taught him well. And Jamie just puffs up with this pride that his son has something of him and that he he had an impact on Willie in his formative years. I think that matters a lot to Jamie. And then when John says he still remembers you, you know. That's more than Jamie could have asked for. And I think it breaks his heart a little bit because he misses Willie so much. And to know that Willie feels the same way, it makes him sad a little bit. And you can see the tears in his eyes at a couple points, which makes me sad. I think it, it did a lot for Jamie to have that affirmation by John, I guess, that Willie's okay and that Jamie did have an impact on him, however small. With that, they kind of move forward, but not quite done with John's character in this episode because there's this brilliant scene between him and Claire where Jamie's not around and John can kind of be frank with Claire, but also he's very good at being coy and understated and just kind of prying for information. And they're both kind of trying to feel each other out, like exactly what do you know and how do you know Jamie? And how involved are you? And what has passed between the two of you? And so as John's asking Claire, and she's like, yeah, he told me about Willie. And he told me about Willie's mother. And John says, he's told you a great deal. And he kind of just takes a sip on his brandy. And I think that in a way, John is trying to get Past the hurt of it, like he knows he shouldn't feel that way, but those things were secrets that John and Jamie shared. Nobody knows about Willie and Geneva aside from John, and I think Isabel and probably Lady Dunsany know a little bit, but they don't know the full extent of it. So, really, John was the only person that knew everything about the situation. And now that Claire has been brought into the fold, it's no longer something that he and Jamie confidentially share, which I do think kind of hurts John a little bit that he feels like he's maybe lost something with Jamie that he had. But likewise, Claire is also wondering what the heck happened with John and Jamie, especially with that look in the office. And it's, it's a bit more than that in the books. And there's... There's a moment where Claire wonders if they were almost romantically involved. Like I think deep down that she knows that didn't happen and that Jamie would never do something like that. But let's not forget in Of Lost Things, Jamie did offer John his body in exchange for looking after Willie. And so there is that between Jamie and John, if nothing else. And I think Claire may sense that. That that was really one of the last times that Jamie and John spoke. It was a couple of days before he left Hellwater. So that may have been what that long silence was about, just kind of like the hashtag awkward of it all. So really just bring up old things and all the nostalgia in this episode, you could really feel it. And I think that a lot of it boiled down to the music. And I counted four different themes that we had not heard in at least five episodes, if not a couple of seasons. So we heard the Versailles theme, which has the harpsichord and the strings. It's one thing that we heard repeatedly when the characters were in Paris in season two. So we heard that as they're driving up to the governor's mansion. We heard Dance of the Druids, which is the infamous tune that we heard um, when Frank and Claire... We're watching the druids dance around the stones in Sassenac. And then obviously, we hear it a little bit throughout whenever we hear anything witchy or folklorish, anything to do with the stones. It's a common theme that we hear, but we haven't heard it in a while. Actually, I think that the last time we may have heard that was in Dragonfly and Amber when Galus popped up. And then we've got the Lord John theme and the Willie theme. The last time we heard both of those, I think we last heard the Lord John theme in All Debt's Paid at the very end. That's the most iconic time that I can think of that right before they arrive at Hellwater. And then the Willie theme, we obviously hear in Of Lost Things. And it's this beautiful little clarinet. And it's so sweet. It reminds me of him so much every time I hear it. So yeah, lots of lots of themes coming back into play when certain characters are mentioned or we're in certain environments that really call back those feelings and emotions and really tie in this storyline, even though we're in a much different setting, to things that we have experienced and watched in the past and things that our characters have gone through and dealt with. So I really do appreciate Bear McCreary and everything he does for the show, I think that it adds a whole other level to it. And I know I discussed it a bit in the last episode as well, but he has been on his game these last couple of episodes of Outlander. Yes, don't think that I missed it because all the nostalgia, like I said, but it's really just a hundred level of fortunate that John is somehow the governor of Jamaica And let me tell you, it is a whirlwind on how he actually got assigned to be the governor of Jamaica. It's kind of a story that is explained and played upon in most of the short stories of Seven Stones to Stand or Fall. So if you're interested in how it all kind of came about for him to be the governor of Jamaica, all the seeds are sown in A Plague of Zombies, and Besieged. Those are really the two that are very much the foundation stones for what we see in Voyager and in this episode and the next episode. So very interesting. Those are quick reads, some short stories if you guys are interested. But not really wanting to invest a lot of time, I would highly recommend Seven Stones to Stand or Fall because it is seven short stories and it really doesn't take any time at all to get through. Something that we get our first little taste of in this episode is Claire's averse reaction to slavery in the slave market. I think it's only fair to touch on her strong reaction to something like that because this is a modern woman who doesn't... No, like obviously, she knew slavery existed, but she's never been forced to see it firsthand. And I think that it's really easy for us to just feel like it's out of the blue to see something like this. And it's particularly this episode and Do No Harm in season four that deal with the whole slavery issue. But honestly, the reason that we don't see it commonly in Outlander is because Jamie and Claire oftentimes are so far removed from the general populace that slavery isn't really something that they deal with on a daily basis. Because in the Highlands, people are so poor that they don't have slaves. It's not that it didn't exist, but it was primarily people in the big cities and further down into England almost and out in the British Empire in general that slavery was more prominent. So now that Jamie and Claire are in Jamaica, in the Caribbean, where the biggest part of the slave trade took place, um, with the slavers coming over from Africa and auctioning off their prisoners, there's no wonder that this has become an issue as Jamie and Claire are landing in Jamaica because Jamaica is not that big of an island, and what small part of it is settled, obviously you're going to have a slave market, and. I do not blame Clara at all for her reaction to this. Like I probably would have had a very similar reaction to watching a young man be manhandled in that way and humiliated in front of a crowd for the sake of selling him as property. It's just horrific what is going on, but I also find it interesting that literally the the easiest way to settle all issues that Claire caused was for Jamie to purchase this man. In all reality, yeah, that's probably pretty pretty realistic. The, like really the only way to solve the issue and shut up the man that was making a stink about Claire's reaction is to give him the money and take possession of this young man. I mean Claire is horrified by the whole thing and the last thing she ever wanted to do was own a person, you know? It's like she said she's like I we have no desire to own you. And it's true, but there's also They're also of the mind that, well, at least he can be safe with us until we find a way to free him. And Jamie brings up the point, we can't let him go here in Kingston. He'll just be captured and resold into slavery. At least when you have the bill of sale, you can prove that he's yours. And we don't have to treat him as a slave. But at least he's safe, essentially, with us. And I know that that's kind of like a catch-22. It doesn't really make sense. If you're a slave, you're a slave. And if somebody has paperwork saying they own you, it doesn't matter how you're treated. You're not a free person in the eyes of a lot of people. And I get that. But at the same time, like if he's being treated civilly, yes, there's that paperwork. But that paperwork, in a lot of ways, is his only protection. It's like Jamie says. If you don't have anything proving that he is with us, then he can be taken by anyone and claimed as their own. And that's not something that they want to do either. So they're trying to find a way to free him, but it is taking a little bit of work just because of where they are in the world. No person of color was safe at that time. And so until they could get him to the Maroons near Rose Hall at the end of this episode, it was safest to kind of play that game. But in the books, this was actually a really key thing because this paper trail that Jamie and Claire are leaving behind with the bill of sale is one way that Brianna and Roger track down Jamie and Claire moving forward. And Brianna at first is like, you know what? There's no, there's no way this is my mom because she would never own a slave But it is kind of the paper trail that helps them hop across the pond to the Americas in their search for Jamie and Claire in the 20th century because of this bill of sale. So it is very interesting to look at it from that point of view, because that's never put into the show at all. But in the books, that is a key factor, which I do find interesting. It's really good to see Jamie and Claire back together in this episode, even if it is just for a short while. They're really feeling like Claire's like, well, I'll just take Leslie and Hayes and we'll go and search over here and da da da. And Jamie's like, no, I'm not being parted from you again. Like, he's like, every time I let you out of my sight, something bad happens. So no, we'll stay together. Thank you very much. But it, it forms a lot of good scenes between the two of them. And one in particular that stands out to me and I think stands out to a lot of people is the scene when they're waiting in line in the governor's mansion to meet Lord John. And they're looking at Fergus and Marsali and how lovey-dovey they're being. And she says, do you remember when we were like that? So obvious in public. And Jamie says, I you couldn't keep your hands from me. And then he was like, of course, you were holding on from the back of a horse for most of that time. So it couldn't be helped which I adore his humor, but also that they're being so cute with each other. And then they have this long moment of eye contact, which a lot of people in the fandom refer to as the eye sex of the show. Like we don't actually get any sex scenes. But man, I wrote down I was like, if the if looks could burn down a city, Kingston would be in ashes. (laughs) Because that was a hot smoldering moment of eye contact. And They were clearly mentally undressing each other (laughs) and telling each other everything they wanted to do to each other. It just goes to show like they're still very hot for each other and they still feel that initial attraction that they had like Fergus and Marsley have now, but they're a bit more mature and subtle about it. They know what that look means when they're looking at each other, but they keep their eye on the prize and their heads on the mission at hand but there's the promise of what's going to happen later. So I love that little look, which, you know, this episode actually had quite a bit of romance in it, which is kind of odd because it really is a lot happening and taking place in preparation for the season finale in the next episode. But even Ferguson and Marsley, like they're so lovey-dovey with each other. There's the scene when Captain Leonard arrives at the governor's mansion But Fergus and Marsley are just outside taking a moment to themselves and Marsley is just talking about how lucky she is to be here in this beautiful place with Fergus as her husband and um, they're so cute. And then you've got this really interesting thing going on between Yi Tin Cho and Margaret Campbell. I really did find it fitting. I know a lot of people thought that this whole storyline was weird and didn't feel like it fit in with the rest of the season. I do tend to disagree a little bit with that because honestly, Margaret is someone that because of her gifts has never been able to be who she is. She's always felt out of place and out of touch and her brother makes her alienated from the rest of the world. People get weirded out when she tries to be herself and tell her prophecies to them Um, Because she has this gift, but it's a gift that people don't understand. And Mr. Willoughby was raised in a completely different culture. Obviously, he appreciates women. But I think he kind of feels that each woman he's encountered along the way has been a version of the same thing, especially in Europe. There are these standards and social etiquette that he doesn't entirely get. But when he sees Margaret, it's like he finally found a woman that was authentically herself, unapologetically who she is, and it's a unique soul, as she calls Mr. Willoughby. She is that way as well. So I felt like they get each other on a level. And yes, they do move fast. But when you find a person like that, it really does click sometimes. So I do think that it moved a little fast, but at the same time, I'm glad that they found each other and that they had this connection because they have spent a lot of time feeling like they're on the outside looking in. So I'm glad that they found someone that can identify with them. It, It makes me all warm and fuzzy inside. So that's kind of my two cents on Mr. Willoughby and Margaret Campbell lots of stuff happening in this episode and it ends with Jamie's arrest by Captain Leonard like this guy Jesus Christ just let it go like i wrote down in my notes Jesus Age Roosevelt Christ like and Jamie and Claire are separated again so luckily this is the last time they get separated in this season And for a while, actually, which, you know, small blessings, because after season three, like, man, I am just, I'm ready for them to have some good domestic bliss for a little bit, you know? So with that, I'm wrapping up my analysis of 312, The Bakra. Before we get to listener feedback, though, I want to take a moment to go over my performance of the episode which I'm divvying up between Lotta Verbeek and David Barry because, man, it's so good to see a couple of familiar faces. Lotta does such a good job being so creepy. Like, she's so creepy, especially in that scene with John Bell where she's, like, using her toes to grab a hold of his shirt and pull him closer. Like, ugh, Like, she gives me the willies. Like, I just... Oh, man, she does such a good job. Let me tell you that scene at the very beginning where you hear her voice and then you see the leg covered in blood and that's your introduction to her. That voice is undeniable. Like before you even see her face, you know it's Galus. And it really just was such a good introduction to her character. She was so wonderfully creepy and psychotic. It it really is great. I love how Lada plays Galus it's really great. And then same with David Barry. He has such a great way of showing all the complexities of Lord John's character. He is almost as talented as Sam in his micro acting on his face. You can see so much in his eyes and in his facial structure. Whenever he acts, you can almost read his mind on his face. It's brilliant. And I think he brings a whole other level to Lord John, like he resembles nothing like the character that Diana created. But somehow, when I am reading those books, and I'm reading Lord John's character, I picture David Barry, like no contest, he just brings so much to that character. And I love it. So good to see a couple of familiar faces again, so far from where we first saw them. And so yeah, David Barry and a lot of verbeak for my performances of the episode. The quote of the episode, though, is a quote from Jamie, and it's actually like mildly a conversation, but not really because Claire only has two words. So it's when they're waiting in line and Jamie first sees John and he says, perhaps it's because of your coming through the stones. Claire says, what is? And he says, the ghosts. They keep coming into our lives drawn to us the way we are drawn to each other. It really does make you wonder, like all the coincidences in this series. Is it because of the stones and because of time travelers? Do they have this magnetic quality that draws people to them? It really does make you wonder because we encounter a lot of time travelers in this series. Galus and Claire are just two of a myriad of people that we will eventually meet. So it's very interesting that in the whole big wide world, these people keep getting drawn to each other. So good quote by Jamie, it gets the wheels turning, makes you really wonder what's going on out there in that sci-fi universe. And maybe one of these days we'll get all the answers to all of our pressing questions. Probably not because Diana likes to leave you hanging. (laughs) which is a little mean in my estimation, but you know, it is what it is. And it's one of the reasons I keep coming back to this series because of all the mystery. So with that, I'm wrapping up my discussion on 312, The Bakra. But before I part ways with you, as always, I want to take a moment to read some of the comments that you guys had to say about this episode. So on Facebook, Regina Geysert says, There was so much crammed into this episode, so it wasn't dull or boring. I do wish they had had more time to spread this section out than they did, because it feels so rushed, and certain aspects are barely catchable before it moves on. I wish they had more time on Lord John Grey's reappearances, and honestly, I could have done with a lot less Galus. I honestly figured out that she was a time traveler very early on in Season 1, because of the way she acted in her line of questioning to Claire in almost every encounter. Overall, it was decently done with how much they had to cram in within their time frame, so other sections of the season weren't cut too short to make sense. Honestly, I haven't found an absolute least favorite episode or even a list of least favorite episodes yet, although I have several least favorite characters, but Galus and Blackjack tie for the top spot. Wow. Galus ties for Blackjack as one of your least favorite characters? That's shocking. That blows my mind. Huh. Alrighty, then. Well, um, yeah, Regina, I do agree with you. There were a lot of things in this episode that really felt rushed. And for viewers that haven't read the books, it's probably one of those episodes that is just there and it's gone. And they don't ever really connect the dots on a lot of things just because in the books, Diana can take time to connect the dots for you. And for book readers to watch it, you're like, Oh, there it is. Oh, wait, it's gone. Whereas show watchers just gloss over it and don't even really see it for what it is. So I do agree with you. It would have been nice if they had had more time to settle on some of the things that they kind of glossed over. But overall, I felt it was it was a decent episode. Joan Cohen says, not my favorite, but with so much crammed into one episode, it certainly wasn't dull. So I see a running trend here. Galus is such a beguiling villain. Just this side of unhinged as she slithers her way around young Ian covered in blood. I find it odd that it still surprises Claire that Galus lies to sue her purposes. So you agree with me, Joan. Yes, I was like, really, Claire? You're buying all of this? Like, she's clearly a psycho and she clearly does what she wants and doesn't care about anybody else. (laughs) So it does surprise me. I'm glad you agree. Joan continues, maybe she still feels indebted to her so she keeps giving her the benefit of the doubt. Quite possibly, Joan. Um, She says, I do hope one day we get to find out the connection between Galus and Joe Abernathy. Sharing the same last name can't possibly be a coincidence in Diana's world. I want so much more from the Jamie-Lord John Clare triangle, one of my all-time favorite book scenes. (laughs) Joan continues and says, There's an odd, almost sexual tension between Jamie and John, but Claire's reaction is too subdued. John doesn't seem to be that taken aback by meeting Claire, nor particularly jealous of her either. Uh Ah? Joan, I don't agree with you. I think that that jealousy was definitely there. I felt it. Joan continues, at least it gets redeemed in blood of my blood when they both let their true feelings show. I like the way the relationship started between Willoughby and Margaret. I think they each recognize a kindred soul. Both are oddities and outsiders put on display. Favorite line goes to Galus with her Casablanca quote of all the gin joints in all the world. Yes, that was so good. I love that they threw that in there. And my last comment of the day is from Linda Monroe. She says, I'm rewatching the series and this is the next episode coming up for me. I've been putting off watching it as it is one of my least favorite episodes of the entire series. It moves too fast and has too many jumps from place to place. The dialogue moves awkwardly and again, jumps too fast. I would have liked more time with Lord John Gray... The Campbells and Galus, just too much happening too fast. So yeah, it seems that generally this isn't a favorite of everybody's, but there are some positives, as everybody's kind of saying. So I agree with all of you on most things. So I will leave it there for this episode. And next week, we are discussing the season three finale, Eye of the Storm. Really excited to break that one down for you. Lots to talk about. And it leaves us in a great place, a great jumping off point for season four. So I'm really excited to chat about it. Like I said in the announcements section of this podcast, make sure to head over to social media to cast your votes for the best episode of season five. We are down to the Elite Eight which has some fantastic episodes, including The Ballad of Roger Mack, Mercy Shall Follow Me, Never My Love, Journey Cake, and many, many more. So like I said, if you want your voice heard there, make sure to head over to Facebook and Instagram to cast your votes as those head-to-head matchups come later this week. With all of that out of the way, I will let you guys go for now. Make sure to stay safe out there. And I will chat at you next week when we discuss 313 Eye of the Storm. Have a good one, guys.